Welcome to our Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution at Stanford University has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. We're excited to be able to connect virtually with you to showcase the important work coming out of our institution. These policy briefings provide an opportunity for you to hear directly from some of our nation's top scholars on the pressing issues facing the world during this difficult time. We hope you enjoy and find value in our discussion. We will be taking audience questions today and encourage you to submit yours at the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from General H.R. McMaster, the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He was the 26th National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. He also served as a commission officer in the United States Army for 34 years before retiring as Lieutenant General in June of 2018. His latest book is entitled Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World and will be released in September and it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. HR, thanks for your service and thanks for joining us today. Hey Tom, thanks. It's, it's really a pleasure to be with you and to be with everyone who's joined. Great. It's going to be an outstanding discussion, I know. HR, I know you've been watching these briefings regularly and, and, and the coverage of the aspects involved with COVID-19. A lot of our discussions have been focused on the impacts of the pandemic in the United States on our economy, etc. Today with you, I'd like to discuss the rest of the world, particularly the geopolitical threats that have been accelerated by COVID-19. I'm going to ask you to take some tour around the world, so to speak, which should be a lot of fun. Let's start with a country on everybody's mind, China. What, what do post-coronavirus-China-U.S. relations look like? Well, well thanks, Tom. I, I think it, it looks a lot like an intensification of the competition that was ongoing with the Chinese Communist Party prior to the COVID-19 crisis. And this competition, I think, is based mainly on what is motivating the Chinese Communist Party, which is primarily and, and you know, first and foremost uh, is, is, the, is the party's desire, effort, to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power, uh, as well as to, to realize its dream of national rejuvenation. That competition, I think, is intensifying in four or five different ways. I mean, first, I think it, we can all see just in, in recent days an intensification of the information warfare that the Chinese Communist Party is, is waging against the United States. We are with a narrative that, you know, that, that the, the United States and other free and open democratic systems have failed and China has succeeded. This is in part to mask really their responsibility uh, for how, how rapidly uh, and how widely uh, the, the, uh, uh, this pandemic spread. Um, and that, that information campaign by the Chinese Communist Party is gonna intensify, certainly. But they're also get, becoming more aggressive militarily. We see it in the South China Sea where in the last couple of days, they, they, they formed these two municipalities you know, to, to govern the, 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 this big land grab in the South China Sea, intimidating the melee. Malaysian um, Navy and, and, and so forth, and, and, uh, and a lot of violations of, of Taiwanese airspace. And, and uh, what you're seeing, I think, is a, is a result of, of this kind of behavior, is a backlash internationally. And I think that's, that's a positive trend, right? This is Germany get, trying, to, trying to charge China $130 billion. Uh, you see the back, a backlash against China in the Western press. I think two-thirds of Americans in a recent poll uh, have, you know, have a negative view. Uh, certainly the Chinese Communist Party. So, so I guess the, the question and what we ought to track now is, you know, what, what, how does this competition play out? Uh, and, and what is the internal dynamic associated with this? You know, China is, 
it ha has has acted in an egregious manner. You know, uh, of course, uh, harassing uh, the doctors to try to warn about this, and then in recent days, you know, arresting you know uh, people who advocate for for uh, for for the Chinese people having a say in how they're governed in, in Hong Kong and on on the mainland. Uh, and so, I think what you're seeing is is really China, the Chinese Communist Party, racing to put in place this Orwellian police state. What's what effect is that going to have in the Chinese across the Chinese population that is becoming uh, more critical of the party and in particular the way they've they've handled this crisis? Of course, this is going to happen against the backdrop of a slowing economy, China not being able to 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 real to make good on the promises it's made to its own people. Uh, under under this the program of national rejuvenation, and and as the, the economy contracts, I think there will be a tendency of the party to double down on practices that actually exacerbate the weakness and vulnerabilities uh, in in that economy, especially doubling down on, on support for state enterprises uh, and, and so forth. So, what what does this mean? I think that we are in a decoupling competition, Tom, and and the United States and other free and open societies ought to do everything we can. To, to protect ourselves against the efforts of the Chinese Communist Party to subvert our free market economic systems uh, and, and our democratic form of governance and do everything we can to strengthen you know, our systems and to strengthen uh, the global economy that is, that is not directly connected uh, and, or dependent on the Chinese Communist Party. So I think the assessments of, of, of supply chain vulnerabilities that we've seen will continue certainly. And I think you're going to continue seeing this, this, this decoupling out of China because it, 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 the Chinese government is not a trusted partner. It's not a good place to do business. Uh, and, and, it, and we can no longer have some of our critical supply chains vulnerable to disruption by the Chinese Communist Party. Got it. Uh, so this, this, the COVID uh, virus is going to accelerate the decoupling that's going on between the West and China. John asks, is there any, are there any other implications, immediate implications of the corona, coronavirus for how U.S. or Western policy will change towards China? Yeah, I, th I think it's going to bring our free and open societies together, right? And, and I think there'll be a much higher degree of international cooperation on confronting the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I, I hope uh, what will happen is countries will protect themselves better uh, against uh, China's efforts to, to gain a, 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 a predominant position in the emerging global economy by capturing critical infrastructure, including 5G infrastructure. And I hope that there's, there's going to be an effort among countries that, that have been vulnerable to Chinese influence and the so-called debt trap associated with uh, the One Belt, One Road initiative uh, to, to protect themselves uh, against China attempting to create a servile relationship uh, with, with, these, with these countries. So I had I, I, already seen a high degree of, of, of international cooperation, really. I know that's not the common narrative that's out there, but there is a lot of a lot of cooperation going on between the European Union, UK, Japan, the United States uh, on confronting the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. But I think that's it's going to grow uh, as this crisis uh, abates. Yeah, got it. Well, let's move on from China to North Korea. What's going on there? And uh, how has the coronavirus impacted the relationships of North Korea with the rest of the world? Well, as you know, as we cope with this crisis, I mean, we are a little bit taking our eye off of some of these other key issues. And, and the coronavirus has, has, in many ways, accelerated the trend of, uh, of isolating the North Korea regime under the, the campaign of maximum pressure. And in many ways, uh, COVID-19 has been the best uh, enforcement mechanism 
uh, mm -hmm. for for uh, UN Security Council sanctions uh, against uh, against North Korea for uh, for its nuclear and, and and missile programs. And and um, I think you know, of course the last couple of days are rumors of, of of Kim Jong Un's illness or maybe even demise that 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 seem to have been greatly exaggerated. But you never know. You know you never know what's really happening within the North Korean elite. It's clear that Kim Jong-un and the Kim family regime is under increasing pressure mm. from the virus. Of course, they report no cases uh, in North Korea, which is just not, uh, not believable. And you've seen some signs of, uh, of, of, the, of, of the crisis and the effect it's having in Pyongyang. Uh, reported you know, binge buying uh, in, within, uh, within Pyongyang. And I think the dynamic to watch there in North Korea is the dynamic within kind of this new... Uh, this new elite uh, within Pyongyang, those who have who have been able to improve their quality of lives, quality of life um, under under the Kim regime, uh, and have have more to lose if if North Korea uh, remains in the status of a of a pariah state, you know, isolated economically and diplomatically, uh, and diplomatically from the from the world. Mm -hmm. So I think um, we ought to realize, you know, North Korea hasn't slowed down <laughs> in it, in its efforts to try to coerce us into making uh, concessions to the sanctions regime. They fired more missiles year to date than they have in any previous year. Mm -hmm. And so far the Trump administration, I think, I think thankfully, you know, and, and correctly has resisted the, the resisted would have been a tendency in the past to repeat the past pattern of failed efforts, right. To, yeah. to get North Korea to denuclearize by responding to North Korea provocation with, you know, a relaxation of sanctions uh, a pay and payoffs just to just in exchange only for negotiations beginning. We can't afford to do that again. And then, of course, you know what follows that are these long drawn out negotiations yeah. that result in a weak agreement and a weak agreement that locks in the status quo as the new normal. And then then you know, we repeat the same pattern again with the next uh, yeah. significant provocation. Yeah. So I think, you know, maximum pressure is, is there's a thesis to it. And the thesis is that 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 maximum pressure can lead the Kim lead Kim Jong Un to conclude that he is safer without nuclear weapons than he is with them, and that policy is still intact. And in fact, I think it's in large measure been reinforced uh, by the COVID nineteen experience in North Korea. Yeah, thanks, HR. Uh, Russia is another significant area of the world. This was supposed to be a very big year for for President Putin, uh, and now we have the coronavirus. What will this mean for the future of Russia itself and the, and the relationships between Russia and the West? Well, this could be the biggest challenge, I think, to Putin's uh, rule in, in, in Russia. And it was supposed to be a big year, right, with the celebration of victory in the Great Patriotic War, uh, also a celebration of, of Putin's ability to, within the, you know, to, to rewrite the Constitution and extend his rule until 2036. And instead, uh, what, they, what they had at the beginning of the year is a continued stagnation in the Russian economy, uh, and then an economic crisis you know, brought about by the severe drop in world oil prices. This is even before COVID hit hit Russia. That was occurring, and now, of course, COVID has exacerbated it. Uh, I think the Kremlin will be seen as complicit uh, in, in 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 the drop in world oil prices, at least initially, with the the the, the price war with Saudi Arabia, uh, and then and then, of course, when the bottom when the bottom's fallen out. I mean, they, there it is a severe uh, a severe economic crisis even before COVID begins to expand within Russia. Uh, I think. Putin will become come under under additional pressure if COVID expands more into the rural areas where where the, the health system is just not going to be robust enough to 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 respond effectively to it. 
So I think everybody ought to remember, right? Again, COVID didn't create a lot of these trends, but I think it's exacerbating these trends. Remember back a few months ago when when uh, Putin tried to control who could run in in the Moscow municipal uh, you know, elections, yeah. there were there were huge protests uh, against Putin, and and there were mass arrests, you know, and and uh, and killing of protesters even. So so I, I think you know, I, I think that that these that the the pressure on Putin is certainly going to mount, and I think something we'll, we'll be watching at, at Hoover is is for who will emerge you know, as a potential new leader of Russia. Not that Putin is, is going to lose power, right? Yeah. But I think power is certainly going to shift really away from him to others. And, and hopefully, among others who, who view Russia's future more as aligned, you know, with Europe and the West than with uh, the Ch- Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. Let me, you're, you're a student of uh, authoritarian governments. And we talked about China, North Korea, Russia. Does the coronavirus virus pandemic strengthen the hand of authoritarian leaders? Well, I think it's really weakening their hand. And this is something that we ought to really try to capitalize on, right? I mean, the, you know, look at how, look at how China handled this initially, right? Suppressed uh, the the human, human transition, uh, uh, transmission uh, uh, aspect of this, of this disease, the most dangerous aspect of the, of the, of the disease, you know, uh, lied to their own people, lied to the, to the international, uh, international audiences, um, Subverted the, the the World Health Organization, stopped internal travel before they they stopped uh, international travel, and now with this kind of you know this ham-handed approach to trying to promote China as a solution to the problem, yeah, I don't think it's gonna it's playing well in in China, you know, let alone the rest of the world. And there's a real backlash against the against uh, against China for this. Okay, well let's go to another authoritarian regime. Of course, we're talking about North Korea, which. Uh, apparently has no cases, right? Which is an impossibility. <laughs> and then, uh, and then Iran, Iran, because of its servile relationship with its, you know, its patron China, you know, didn't shut off travel, and they got infected in in, in a big way. Uh, and then the government denied it, you know, it didn't didn't put into place any any measures that were necessary. And of course, also in in Iran, there there had been the protests against the government and the corrupt order. Uh, that, that runs Iran, and I think that you know COVID nineteen is going to make is going to make it worse for Iran there, and uh, as as well as how Iran is perceived elsewhere, you know, from Iraq to uh, to Lebanon to to Syria to to Yemen. So um, I really think it's going to redound to the disbenefit of dictators. Let's go to another one in Venezuela. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and these these are all connected. These people are connected with each other, right? And these regimes are connected with each other. So Venezuela, of course. Depends almost exclusively on, on, on oil revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the bottom has fallen out of that market, the way that they've been able to survive is really with stipends, you know, from uh, from from China and Russia in exchange uh, for oil, uh, uh, Venezuelan oil provided at below market prices, which then Russia and and China would sell, you know, at at a, at a profit. Well, how's that working? That's not working out now. And then Russia has had to bail out Rosneft. Uh, within Venezuela for about $4 billion. And that's not playing well back in Russia. And that's sort of exacerbating, right. you know, the sentiment against uh, against Putin. Uh, I think Guaido has an opportunity within Venezuela, you know, to 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 pose as a, as a leader who will actually help them get get out of this crisis. Right. And, and really the, the key factor to watch is Venezuelans, maybe you know, especially among kind of the former Chavistas, you know, are they going to begin 
to, to attribute their grievances to the Maduro regime. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and so I think it's bad, it's bad for dictators. I really do. I think what we're seeing, Tom, is the benefit of our free, open, democratic system. As, as dissatisfied as the Americans are with you know, the government's initial response to this and, and so forth, you know, we have a, a self-correcting mechanism. We have a say in how, in how we're governed. Yeah. And, and, uh, and in these societies that don't, I mean, really, it, 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 as, you, as, as, as the people's voices are suppressed, I mean, the only alternative to change might be, turn out to be a revolution of some kind, mm-hmm. right? So, so um, I'm optimistic about, about democracy and free yeah. and open societies uh, yeah. as long as we, we pay attention to ourselves, right? And, and do everything we can to strengthen you know, our own confidence, our democratic processes and institutions. Yeah. Yeah. HR, before we go into the Middle East, uh, John asked a very interesting question that has to do with this information warfare activity that's going on in almost a with Russia and Iran. And his question is basically, should the U.S. be doing more directly to offset the disinformation campaign that's going on around the sources and, and, uh, and growth of the pandemic? Yeah, I, I think we should. And and, you know, I, I think that the best response, the best response would be a, 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 from, from our, our investigative journalists and, and from our, our open press, right? Russia, you know, Russia and Iran, they, they, they see, you know, our, 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 our free and open society as a, as a weakness, right? They see freedom of speech and freedom of the press as a weakness. You know, that's our strength. And so I think we ought to be very active, you know, at exposing, you know, our, really our, our, our media should be. Um, at exposing the, their nefarious activity and, and, and their dishonesty and, and, uh, and, and uh, disinformation efforts. Uh, but also, I think government does have a role to a certain extent in trying to figure out how to bypass these firewalls. I think, it, I think that you know, we should try to bypass China's and, and Iran's firewall and reach the people with, with information that can allow them to maybe form their own judgments based on, on the truth, you know, rather than disinformation and propaganda. I think it's abhorrent, you know, by the way, <laughs> that U.S. social media companies won't take down, won't take down blatant, you know, uh, state-sponsored propaganda and disinformation uh, in, the, in the United States when they don't even get to have access in, into the Chinese market. Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot more we can do to defend ourselves. But to answer your question directly, heck yes, I think we should do more, you know, to expose this disinformation and, and propaganda. Yeah, Sandy. Well, let's go to the Middle East, right? The big enchilada, Iraq, Iran, Syria. How has the virus and the pandemic affected that region of the world? Well, Tom, just when you think it can't get worse in the Middle East, you know, it does get worse <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the Middle East. And, and it is a you know, humanitarian crisis of colossal scale that we're witnessing uh, across the region. And we, we already talked a little bit about, about Iran, but, but Iran is going through a, a crisis of the regime's own making. Uh, it is it is a pariah state because it acts like a terrorist organization rather than than a nation state, and it's sort of it's reaping what it deserves at this stage, uh, in connection with you know a corrupt economic system where you know the the mullahs associated with the supreme leader, you know are at the top of, uh, and their families at the top of these bunyads, uh, which are, which are these sort of criminalized uh, uh, networks. Uh, as well as the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, with, with, with members of that Guards Corps being really the beneficial owners of a lot of Iranian companies. Well, I mean, they're, they're suffering from their economic isolation, and now 
and now COVID, and now the collapse of oil prices, right? So, so there are external adventures, you know, in the, in the region, you know, there's support for, for uh, Houthi uh, insurgents in, in Yemen, there's support for Assad with a proxy army in, in Syria, uh, there's support for Hezbollah, the, the militias in Iraq, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the terrorist organizations uh, that, that, uh, that, that pose a threat to, to Israel. I mean, this is, you know, this, this is really going to have to draw on the question, as it was before COVID and before the, the utter collapse of oil prices uh, among the, Iraqi, the, the Iranian people, what is the priority of this government? It, it, it does, it, is this government uh, the government that they, they want in the future? And of course, that's going to be up to the Iranian people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I think Iran is in a real crisis. Hey, Iran, you know, I think has had three choices. You know, when, when the United States pulled out of the JCPOA and, and reimposed sanctions, those three choices were, you know, first they, they could, you know, they could become like the Grinch at Christmas, right? Their hearts could get two sizes bigger. They could come to the negotiating table. You know, they could change their behavior, stop their proxy wars. Okay, that, that wasn't going to happen because it wouldn't be consistent with the, re- the revolutionary ideology that drives the regime. The second thing they could do is try to wait out Donald Trump and try workarounds with the European Union and others. That's not working, right? They're, they are in an economic crisis. And the third would be to escalate, and that's what they're doing. And I think COVID has sort of hidden, you know, from our attention anyway, uh, a real escalation by the Iranians uh, in, in Iraq and in, and in the Gulf. That escalation has resulted in about 20 attacks on, on, on U.S. forces since the January 3rd uh, killing of Qasem Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis uh, in, with, the, with the drone strike in, in, in Iraq. Uh, and, 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 and so what you're seeing is U.S. forces consolidating, and you're seeing also reprisals against Iranian militias inside of Iraq. You also saw just yesterday the president tweeting uh, that, that we will sink uh, Iraqi uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps Navy vessels that harass our ships in, in the Gulf. And I think Iran is, is going to continue to push it, and they're going to push it beyond the limit. I think there's, there's really a chance for an escalation uh, that will result in a reprisal maybe directly against Iran or Iranian assets. Um, you know, I think, I think the Trump administration demonstrated with the Soleimani strike that, hey, when, when their proxies attack us, we know what the real return address is, right? And, yeah. and, um, and so I, I think that uh, it's a dangerous time uh, in the Gulf as a result. But what you're seeing in Iraq, which is a country in crisis, is, is a backlash against Iran as well, right? And, and you had, you know, the political crisis associated with the, Iran, the Iraqi people's dissatisfaction with their government, right? When Adul al-Domadi has to step down, and then the, the next prime minister is supposed to try to be able to form a, a government, Adnan al-Zurfi, you know, he's, he's really blocked by the Iranians. Now you have Mustafa al-Qadami coming in. Who's a, who's, a, who's a good leader, I think. He's not certainly not Iranian puppet. He's been the head of their intelligence agency. Um, he's an effective leader, uh, but, but uh, you know, he's going to be stuck with a very difficult situation. You have the collapse of the oil prices. Their, the Iraqi budget is at least two times bigger than the revenue that they're going to take in this year, and, and that's probably an understatement. And then, and then you have the COVID-19 crisis, uh, as well as, as, as the Iranian infiltration subversion of the government. Yeah. So... Iraq is, is a country that is, is going into, into an even worse crisis. Uh, and I think we ought to try to maintain our, our influence and su- support there. I think the Iraqi people are going to want that more and more uh, as, as they see that, that their fate you know, uh, tied to an alternative to this Iranian influence. There's a good sign of that initially. The, the, the Iraqi uh, government has refused Iranian demands to open the border to protect their people uh, from, from COVID-19. 
Uh, in Syria, you know, the, the you know we're seeing kind of just the kind of the latest episode in what is a, a serial mass homicide of the of the of the Syrian civil war enabled by Russia uh, and and Iran. Uh, and and uh, and I, I think this this is obviously a humanitarian crisis that's growing. About a million refugees yeah. displaced by the by the indiscriminate mass murder and bombing uh, within Idlib province. COVID nineteen hitting the camps there and in Turkey and in Lebanon and in Jordan would is going to be disastrous unless unless we can provide you know some kind of assistance there. Turkey is probably having some buyer's remorse, you know. On, on their, 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 their aligning with Russia. Uh, the, you know, uh, Russia-enabled operations have killed Turkish soldiers uh, in, in Syria. There may be diplomatic and opportunities there to, to isolate Assad you know, from, and, and his sponsors, Russia and, and Iran. And of course, in Lebanon, there's a crisis, again, kind of underreported these days because of COVID, but COVID exacerbating it, right? Mass protests in Lebanon led to the, led to the, the prime minister stepping down there. Hariri stepping down, and and uh, and it also these were mass protests against Iranian influence there also. Uh, the 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 Lebanese financial system is in freefall. It was before COVID. This is because it was corrupt. I mean, there's a Ponzi scheme essentially being run out of the national banking system. And you know, guess who had a lot of money there? <laughs> it was was Assad and the RGC had a lot of money in that system, right? When you get 13 percent return, you know, out of a checking account. Uh, it seems like a good deal until the whole Ponzi scheme collapses, right? So, so I, I think what you're seeing is, again, this acceleration uh, of trends in the region. Is it going to get better? I, I don't think it's going to get worse before it gets better, right? But there are opportunities here, especially associated with, you know, with, with isolating uh, the, the, you know, the, these uh, nefarious actors, Assad in particular, you know, from, uh, from, uh, from uh, external support. Got it. HR, you mentioned Iran's uh, escalating aggression in the region. Jane asked an interesting question having to do with uh, Iranian technology and the launching of a new satellite. Do, do we have the ability to combat the new threats posed by their technological advancements? Well, you know, they, they, are, they are pursuing the, the, the missile technology aggressively, and they were, right? Even under, under the Obama administration when the JCPOA was in place. This is one of the flaws associated with JCPOA is it, it did not block Iran's path to the range of capabilities necessary to threaten the world with the most destructive weapons on earth, right? And so, so, uh, so the, their, their missile program has advanced tremendously. Uh, they, they're ben- they benefited, you know, from, from North Korea provided technology um, in, the, in that program. And, uh, and I don't think you know, we have missile defenses. Certainly, you see those deployed in in the region. Uh, and but I think you know we don't have an answer uh, to uh, to that to that to that threat. I think that what has to happen is is to resist any of these calls to to alleviate sanctions uh, on the regime. I think the Iranian regime has to be forced to make a choice. Right, make a choice between acting like a normal nation state and being treated like one. Uh, or acting like a, yeah. a terrorist organization and, and who's been waging essentially a proxy war against us for 40 years uh, or, or being or being treated being treated like that. Yeah, uh, maybe a couple of quick reactions to different regions of the world. We were not reading much about India and Pakistan these days and the tensions that exist along their border, even though both countries are begin, becoming to become increasingly threatened by the pandemic. What's going on there? Gosh, well, you know, pa- Pakistan, it's a country that you, it always seems like it's on the verge of 
you know, of state collapse, <laughs> but maybe because, you know, they start at such a, you know, a, a low level in, in terms of governance uh, that, that they never really collapse fully. It's just get, the situation just get, keeps getting worse. Uh, I think COVID hitting Pakistan will be, you know, of course, be disastrous because of the, the population, size of the population, the population density, and the lack of, of health uh, infrastructure. When, you know, when, uh, you know, when the Pakistani army uh, meets any kind of a challenge, what, what do they do? They lash out against India. It's just, it's like the, it's almost like the Geico commercial, you know, it's what yeah. you do. They can't help themselves. And, yeah. and of course it's the, it's a reason for existence and so forth. So I think because there already is a, you know, a continuing simmering conflict in, in, in Kashmir, uh, that there could be, you know, as, 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 a, as the Pakistani army feels a need to act out, uh, there, there could be, um, you know, there could be a clash there. Uh, within, within India, of course, India is a, is a country of great promise and, and, and of great problems, right? There are already you know, huge numbers of the population uh, who, who suffer from, from water insecurity and food insecurity. There is a threat to the Indian uh, uh, agricultural supply chain now. Uh, I think it is in all of our interests, interests of the free world, for India to succeed. So I think what, you know, this ought to be one of our top foreign pro- policy priorities. As we are doing everything we can to assist India with this crisis, because you know everything that happens in India is of a huge scale, right? Because of the size of the of the population. But we ought to also be trying to convince uh, Prime Minister Modi, certainly, but really the whole uh, BJP, that to, to abandon these Hindu nationalist policies. I mean, I think that you know what could what could really be disastrous is if we saw replicated in India the sectarian civil war that we've seen create this destructive cycle of violence you know, across, across the, the greater Middle East. And of course, you know, the, the security in South Asia is, is connected to what's happening in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm frankly, you know, very concerned, you know, about the so-called deal with the, the Taliban. And this, I mean, what I've seen is this sort of strange, you know, uh, phenomenon in which now we seem to be partnering with the Taliban uh, you know, you know, in, in, in pursuit of peace and, and, and at times, you know, exerting influence against the Afghan government. Right. So I think it's sort of a it's sort of a the inverse of what we ought to be doing. And, and the reason why I'm concerned about the situation in Afghanistan is we've kind of created these false assumptions about the situation to fit really the, what we would like to be the reality there. Right. We, we like to, to draw this bold line between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Well, that, that bold line just doesn't exist. And so what, what are, what is at stake in Afghanistan? What is at stake is you know, if there is a, you know, a, a collapse or a severe weakening of the Afghan government, you will have a Taliban like regime back in place, right? The Islamic Emirates uh, of Afghanistan. And, and, and once you have that, that's a physical victory for, for, uh, for an organization uh, that that continues to provide safe haven support base for terrorists, continues to have the relationship with Al Qaeda uh, that, that it had uh, from from the, the very beginning, but it'll be a huge psychological victory as well. And of course, you know, because this problem set exists on the Afghan-Pakistan border, it can bleed over into Pakistan quite easily. So, I, South Asia is an area I think of, of grave concern, and you know, we, we're not going to solve any of these problems, but I think it's worth the investment. The, the you know the the diplomatic, certainly, investment, the small military investment that we have in the region to prevent the worst from happening, right? Because 
because if there is a, is a collapse, the consequences will be quite severe, not only in the region, but as we know, right, from the Syrian civil war, you know, the, it, <laughs> these problems don't adhere to Las Vegas rules, right? What, what happens there doesn't stay there, right? Th those problems migrate uh, to, 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 uh, to other areas, as and the grave effect, for example, this humanitarian crisis has had on Europe. Yeah. Hey, Charlie, let's move to the Western Hemisphere. And Monica asked a really interesting question. Uh, she says, will the U.S. redirect its efforts to Latin America? It seems that in the last 20 years, the U.S. has abandoned the Southern Hemisphere. You know, the nature of that question is, are, will, this, will the coronavirus pose any strategic threats in our hemisphere? Yeah, I, I think this is an opportunity for us, you know, to strengthen relationships across the Western Hemisphere. I'll tell you, though, if, when you look at the kind of the broader sweep of, of history here, at least, you know, from the, uh, the, you know, the late uh, 20th century to today, our relationships across the region are pretty darn good from a historical perspective. And I'll tell you, when I was, when I was in the job as National Security Advisor, just had really wonderful relationships uh, with the, the leaders of, of, of you know, many of the countries in, 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 the, in the hemisphere and, and certainly uh, counterparts within those governments. And we worked together you know, on, on some really critical issues, you know, Venezuela be, being, being one of those and, and trying to, to assist the Venezuelan people in, in reestablishing constitutional governance there. And, and what I saw was a tremendous cooperative relationship with Mexico. I mean, despite, you know, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the president's tendency uh, to, uh, to, to insult uh, Mexican <laughs> leaders and so forth, <laughs> but below, below that, I mean, I mean we, we worked extremely well together. Now, of course, there's been a change of government there and Mexico is really worth watching closely. Right. I mean, so right now in Mexico, they're, they're, I think they've declared like 8,000 8, cases of COVID is probably 10 times that, that amount of, uh, of COVID within, within Mexico. Their public hospitals aren't, aren't in great shape. The government's trying to, to respond to that. But really what's of concern in Mexico is the economic response there, right? The, now, of course, I always use the caveat, I'm not an economist, and there are plenty of qualified economists at Hoover to comment on this. But, it, but I think it's worth noting that instead of you know, quantitative easing, instead of a, a fiscal stimulus, AMLO, you know, the, the, the president has instead chosen uh, austerity, you know, and, 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 you know, that's obviously, it's just not going to work, right? And, and so even though he is, you know, a left-wing uh, politician, he, he feels that, you know, that a stimulus package is only good for companies. He's very anti-business in, in his predisposition. And so I, I think what you're going to see is, is Mexico is going to have a tough time uh, recovering from this economically. And of course, you know, what are other big industries there? Oil, tourism, right? It's not, it's not looking good. Now, the opportunity in the Western Hemisphere broadly is as there's a rethinking of global supply chains. You know, I think a lot of manufacturing could move, right? Could, could, could yeah. move into the, into, the, into the Western Hemisphere. And in particular, if, if we focus on effective implementation of US MCA, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the NAFTA follow on, it could be beneficial to the Mexican people, which of course benefits us from mm -hmm. all, all sorts of, of, of different perspectives, including, you know, including uh, uh, migration uh, problem sets and, and so forth. But the, the, but the combination of problems, right, of, 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 of violence and criminality, uh, this, this kind of left wing government uh, in, in, in Mexico that may be actually prescribing the exact opposite of what's necessary uh, for an economic uh, recovery, uh, I think is going to lead in, in a very difficult 
difficult direction for uh, for Mexico. More broadly in the hemisphere, uh, I, I think uh, Brazil, uh, Colombia, others are are engaging stimulus uh, uh, programs to, to get to get through this. Brazil, of course, also very much affected by uh, by by oil. But again, what what predated COVID was again a competition between free and open free market economic systems, right? And 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 more socialist, you know, statist economy economic systems. In Mexico, that's played out with with a shift toward more of a statist uh, model. Uh, there, there were, as, as you know, the the uh, and still are uh, even, even d- during COVID. Uh, protests going on in Chile over this. Uh, and you have a shift back to the left and the statist uh, model in our Argentina as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess, to, I'm sorry to go on about this, but to answer your question, yeah. these competitions are gonna continue. I yeah. think we ought to continue to support our, our, our friends in the region who, who, who are democratic uh, countries, Colombia, of course, very special relationship uh, with, with Colombia uh, and, and, uh, and, and help all of us succeed. And then to demonstrate to the, to the people of the hemisphere that what works is, is rule of law, strong democratic institutions, and a, and a free and a responsible free market economic system. So as we work on our own, uh, how we come out of this, you know, and ensuring equal quality of opportunity and 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 getting economic growth going again, uh, and and and, uh, and employment, we, we ought to take a look at it from a hemispheric perspective and see, you know, how we can all help each other. Yeah, got it. I have a few remaining questions, but first I want to remind everybody that you're listening to H.R. McMaster, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. I also want to remind you that you can access research by other Hoover fellows at our website, hoover.org. H.R., I'd like to talk about your time in the White House. And uh, this is, a, and I want to ask you a question that's uh, really related to recent criticisms of the administration and some of the leaderships at, at CDC and at the Health and Human Services for kind of inadequate preparation or responses to the outbreak of the pandemic. When you were serving as national security advisor for President Trump, how did you prepare for the pandemic? Right, well, of course, you know, this has been work that had been going on in the government for quite some time. Uh, as, as, as in your, in your interview with, uh, with Secretary Rice, she mentioned how President George W. Bush had read a book on pandemics and said, hey, we have to really focus on this. And, and, and so there had been work across multiple administrations on pandemic preparation. We continued that work in the first year of the of the Trump administration, uh, it was one of our top what we call national security challenges to focus on and to develop integrated strategies. Uh, to summarize, we identified really three priority tasks that we had to accomplish to prepare for a potential p- pandemic. The first of these, the first of these tasks, uh, was, was that we would have to try to improve global surveillance and to try to contain these problems uh, w- where they originate. Right, that's the first task. Well, of course. That effort was foiled by the fundamental dishonesty of the Chinese Communist Party, um, uh, but but of course this has to remain a priority for for the for the future. Is is seeing it quickly and containing it. The second area was to innovate, to be able to develop uh, solutions to, uh, to 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 threats, either man-made, you know, bio, bio threats uh, and hazards, or uh, or a pandemic like this. And there's been considerable investment over the years. In, in the capability and the capacity, right, to develop therapies as well as the all-important vaccines, rapid vaccine prototyping, the, and the capacity to to, ma- to manufacture or to produce vaccines at, at scale. Uh, I think those investments are, are going to pay off. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I don't know how much more investment is necessary, but there has been significant investment that puts us, I think, in a, in a decent place with that. The third area was that we had to be able to mobilize a response to this kind of a, a pandemic. Well, this is where we've, we've fallen short, right? And you've seen 
really the, the we didn't have enough of you know fill in the blank you know, uh, personal protective uh, equipment uh, ventilators you know and so forth so what's really important I think now is to is to understand better what we have to do uh, to, to, to ensure more effective coordination and integration across departments and agencies and to improve our ability to respond and shift resources mobilize and shift resources including people with the right expertise and so forth um, in connection with this kind of a problem. I think we ought to, everything ought to be on the table um, in terms of how, how do we organize and with what capabilities do we put in the National Guard, for example, versus the, you know, the Army Reserves? You know, what, what do we need in terms of a national dashboard, which we should be able to do, I mean, pretty easily, yeah. to monitor you know, uh, everything from, you know, from, from ventilators to, to ICU beds to, uh, to you know, where do we have enough respiratory therapists? You know, do, we have, uh, do we have what we need to cope with this kind of a with this kind of a crisis, and I think that can be done relatively easily. Uh, and then, of course, what you're going to see is is you know is a, an effort to reduce the vulnerability of our supply chain, um, our, our medical supply chain. And and you know, as, as Scott Atlas uh, has pointed out, and, and Scott and I have an upcoming op-ed on this topic, is you know this is a big issue. These supply chain issues medically for routine healthcare, you know, as well as in the time of a crisis. So there's going to be a lot of work to do on the back end. I, I, am, I am confident in how we're catching up to this problem. And then, of course, what we have to do on the back end is say, hey, how did it fall through in, in implementation, right? You can write the best policy in the world in Washington, D.C., right? yeah. <laughs> but it's not going to implement it itself. And so I, I, think, I think there ought to be more focus on, on implementation. What do we learn from the failure to implement? You know, I think we're fundamentally sound plans. I mean, I think those three key priorities those are, yeah. are the right key priorities. Uh, where, where, where do we, you know, where do we perform unsatisfactorily and how do we improve? The good news, Tom, is, hey, we're a democracy and, mm-hmm. and we can, you know, we can criticize our government. We can, we can, we can put pressure on our government to get better, right? I, I think the, the disadvantage to the, to the Chinese people or the Iranian people is that they can't do that. Yeah, great. HR, this has been a stunning discussion. Thanks so much for your insights and, and comments. We really appreciate it. Uh, we had a good time. It was, it was fun. Thanks for the opportunity to be with everyone. Thanks for joining us. Great. I want to remind everybody that our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Tuesday, April 28th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be with George Osborne and will discuss the effects of COVID-19 on the United Kingdom. George Osborne is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. From 2010 to 2016, he served as Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, During that time, he was a member of the National Security Council, and he also served as Britain's first Secretary of State. Prior to that, George was a member of Parliament. He is currently the editor of the Evening Standard. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our Twitter handle is at hooverinst. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you again next time. Please stay safe and healthy, and thanks. Have a nice weekend.